Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can get together here and study more about who you are. And uh, Lord, I do pray as we look at the sixth trumpet judgment that you would uh, again reinstill in us that you are the one who's coming for your church, that you are the one who's going to judge your enemies. And that's what's required to be saved is repentance, to turn from idolatry to you on your terms. So we pray, Lord, that we would understand what repentance is today, that you would put it in our heart so that we would be those who constantly turn towards you away from this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I just want to give a little review um, since we have a small group too. Does everyone remember the, how the judgments go? They go from the seals. Remember, we have seven seals, seven trumpets, and then we have the seven bowls. Everyone remembers that? And the seventh seal opens up to the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is going to open up to the seven bowls. Well, we had just finished last time the fifth trumpet. And in the fifth trumpet, remember, you had demons that were stinging people for five and a half months, or five months, rather, and they didn't die. And all of those who were being stung were strictly the unregenerate. Okay, now, when we come to the sixth trumpet, we're going to see demons are going to kill up to a third of humanity. And again, those that they're killing are only the unregenerate. So we're going to see two things then at the sixth trumpet. One, we're going to see progression in judgment where we're going from, remember we lost a quarter of the earth's population at the fourth seal. Well, now you're going to lose another third of the earth's population. So you're going to be over a half of the world's population that is going to be killed from the wrath of God. Now, one of the questions that we're going to ask again has that ever happened in human history? Have you ever seen a half of the Earth's population decimated in such a short time? Well, of course, the answer is no. And what that would indicate then is what John is describing is certainly something that is not happening now or has happened in history, but it's something that's going to occur in the future 70th week of Daniel. Yeah, Mike. Well, yeah, you know what? That, uh, great point. Mike brings up Noah's flood. That would be an exemplary judgment that happened in the past. What I'm basically saying is from the, fir- the uh, first advent of Christ on, consider uh, the age we live in is the church age, for lack of better. Um, that's never in the church age has it ever occurred that we've lost uh, that much people. So very good point. We lost everybody except eight people uh, in the flood. So very good point. Yeah. So I'm just thinking of the church age. And sometimes it's called the age of grace. It's the age in which God doesn't just pour out his wrath uh, continuously upon those who deserve it. So the other thing we're going to see, though, is despite the severe judgment, there's going to be no repentance by those who are engaged in idolatry, and which is shocking. It just shows you that it's a supernatural act that anybody can repent just because people are suffering or hurting or they're dying doesn't mean that they're going to be moved by their own volition to end up repenting and coming to God on his terms. So let's begin then where we see that God releases the four bound angels. This is Revelation 9, 13 through 14. It says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, one of the things that we have to interpret to get this text right is who is it that's speaking? Who is the one who is speaking to the sixth angel? Well, there's been several different interpretations on that. First, some people believe 
that what's speaking here to the sixth angel is actually the altar. So it's as if the altar is being personified in heaven and the altar is crying out. The problem with that interpretation is in the book of Revelation, inanimate objects never speak. Okay, so I I don't think that that has any merit to it. Another view is that perhaps it's the saints. The saints are crying out. But what's interesting is the saints in the book of Revelation never give commands to angels. So, of course, another interpretation is it's God. God certainly can command his angels, and he does command his angels to do his bidding. The problem with that view is in Revelation 16, 7, we end up seeing the voice from the altar addressing God. Okay, so the best take, I think, on it is that the one who is speaking to the sixth angel is itself, or himself or herself, I guess there's no gender to an angel, they're actually an angel that goes all the way back to the seventh seal in Revelation 8.3. So this is the angel, I think, that is speaking. Remember back in Revelation 8.3, it said another angel came and stood at the altar. Okay, so this altar was, had what on it? Well, it was holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Now, what's interesting about that is I think this brings a connection then to this one who is speaking, this angel from the altar. Remember, this brings in the connection back to the saints who are crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Because it's their prayers that went forth. Now God is answering them, and he's pouring out all that wrath. So let me just give you a reminder. Turn your Bibles back to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. I just want to remind you of the fifth seal because this will show you that, in fact, right now, God is answering the prayers of the saints at the sixth trumpet. Again, Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Notice it says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, what's the reply? Notice everyone in verse 11. It says, And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed even as they had been, would be completed also. Now, remember at that fifth seal then that I just read to you, I made the point there that that judgment wasn't a judgment of killing Christians. It's not that God's wrath is being poured out on believers and therefore they're dying. But rather, God's wrath is being depicted because he's using the prayers of the saints. It's as if the crying out of all the saints is reaching God's ears. And so now, when we get into the trumpet judgments, the reference back to that altar where the prayers came from is showing us that God is answering those prayers. He is pouring out his wrath. And it will culminate when we get through the seven bowls to, at the Battle of Armageddon where the Lord comes in complete judgment and sets up his reign. Okay, does that make sense? So I want you to see that connection. <clears throat> God is answering the prayers of his saints who are crying out, How long, O Lord? Now, the other thing I want you to see is notice there's four angels who are bound. And one thing we have to wrestle with are these Good angels or are they bad angels? Well, more than likely, they're wicked angels because good angels are never depicted as being bound. Now, I don't think that's necessarily an airtight argument, but more than likely, 
They're probably wicked angels that God is using for his purposes that are bound here at the Euphrates. Now, the Euphrates is very important. The Euphrates River, remember, marks not only the boundary, one of the boundaries of Israel on the eastern side, but it also marks the location from where the majority of Israel's enemies would have come from. If you were an Israelite living back during the time of David or prior or after, your fear was of those who came across the Euphrates. Okay? And so this is why they called the enemy from the north. They would have to go basically from the northeast to come and get you. And so whether it be Assyria or Babylon or any other nation that came after them, the Euphrates was the boundary that they'd often cross. But I want you to see, first of all, that the Euphrates is important because it marks out the boundaries of Israel. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 15, 18. So what I'm going to show you is the boundaries of Israel. Then I'm going to show you how the enemies come from that Euphrates. And then I'm going to show you in the great messianic age, sure enough, Messiah will have the boundaries of Israel extend all the way to the Euphrates, just as he promised. And you're going to have people who come from the whole world, even across the Euphrates, to come and worship the Lord. So we'll look at that. So Genesis 15, 18. Hope everyone's turned there. Genesis 15, 18. Notice it says, On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, now stop there, what's the term for descendants? Zerah, your seed. Right? So anytime we see descendants, typically in the Old Testament, we should see the term seed. Why is that important? Let's just stop for a moment. What's the very first promise in the Bible, really? Genesis 3.15, to your seed, remember? To the woman's seed is going to crush the serpent's head. So this seed promise incorporates both the one, the Messiah, and the many, that is Israel, and what's more, even Gentile believers that are grafted in. Okay, so when we read about that seed, it's more than just the Messiah, but it's not less than the Messiah. It's all of Israel. It's the Messiah and its believers. Okay, now, one day, of course, all Israel will be saved, but that doesn't mean every single Israelite who was born a Jew is going to be saved. It means those who are born again. Okay, now, he makes a promise then that the seed is going to be given this land. Notice the boundaries from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, the question we have to wrestle with, has God's land ever had that large of a boundary? Well, during the time of Solomon, it approached it. But it's never gone that far. So this awaits a future fulfillment, and sure enough, we're going to see that in the Messianic age. Okay, so the nation of Israel will be much larger than it is today. And in the Messianic reign, you won't have the UN complaining about it. (laughs) Isn't that great? I'm just so sick of the UN. So they won't be able to mess with that, right? Now, when we get to Revelation 16, 12, just jot this down. We're going to come to the sixth bowl. And where do all of the enemies come from that are going to attack Israel at the Battle of Armageddon? We'll talk more about what Armageddon is when we get to it. Well, they're going to cross the Euphrates. Okay, so now you have the demonic hordes at the Euphrates. Revelation 16, you're going to have the physical armies at Euphrates. Remember Joel. Joel's locusts represented something. They were real, but they also represented the armies. Here the demons are real, but what's spiritual is going to become physical 
um, in Revelation 16 where the armies actually come. Okay, now I'm not saying this isn't physical, they're manifestations. What I'm saying is it goes from the spiritual to the, or supernatural to the natural. That seems to be the order of events here in the book of Revelation. So now, one thing I want to turn your attention to is turn your Bibles to Micah 7, 9 through 12. Micah 7, verses 9 through 12. What I want want you to see here is that God promises one day, and I'm not even convinced, I'm, I'm not even sure I'm convinced on the understanding of this text. In Micah 7, 9 through 12, I think more than likely what's being depicted here is that there's going to be a time where the nations will come and flow to worship Yahweh. And where are they going to cross? They're going to cross the Euphrates. But another way of seeing this is it could be a reference to judgment that will come upon the enemies of Israel who come across the Euphrates. And I'll show you why there's some debate on this text. Micah 7, verses 9 through 12. Now, Micah here, remember, who was he? He was a prophet to the people of Israel. And he reigned, in, uh, or I should say he prophesied during the reign of Jotham, which is probably around 730 B.C. And what he's doing is he's calling the people of Israel to repent, to come back to covenant faithfulness. But if they won't, he's explaining that they will indeed suffer the wrath of God. Listen to what he says. He's bearing, now Mike, as he's speaking, is really taking upon himself the mantle of all of Israel. He says, I will bear the indignation of Yahweh. So that's the wrath of Yahweh because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Now notice Micah 7.10. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is Yahweh your God? My eyes will look on her and that time she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day, will your boundary be extended? Now, let's stop there. Where will the boundary of Israel be extended? Well, it'll be to the Euphrates, won't it? Just as God had promised all along in Genesis fifteen eighteen. Now, remember here in Revelation, where do the enemies come from? They come from the Euphrates. Well, are they going to have to worry about that anymore? Well, notice here, it's very interesting. In verse 12 of Micah 7, it says, It will be a day when they, that's the enemies of Israel, will come to you from Assyria, across the Euphrates, and the cities of Egypt. Now, remember, what marks the boundaries of Israel? The river of Egypt, the Nile, and the river Euphrates. So now the enemies are going to come to them. But here's the question, is it for judgment or because they're coming to worship Yahweh? Well, I'll show you the debate here. Notice it continues, it says, From Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain, and the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. Now, some scholars believe that this is a reference to when all of the enemies of God will one day flow to Mount Zion in Jerusalem and they'll worship Yahweh. They'll worship the Messiah as he reigns. The one problem with that is we know in the millennial kingdom that there's not going to be any sea. Now, when it says, notice it says it's from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. That may just be a figure of speech saying they're going to come from all over. Okay? But notice what's very curious to me is in verse 13, it says, And the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. So that would seem to me to indicate that what's being depicted here is judgment. 
judgment upon the enemies that surround Israel. So we know that before the Messianic age, the judgment's going to come. Why? Because the enemies come from the Euphrates. They're going to invade Israel, and God is going to wipe them out. But we also know one day the whole world, as a result, is going to come and worship him. Okay, so again, in this text, I'm not convinced that it's necessarily Micah's point that they're coming just to worship. I think they may be obliterated. So again, those are the enemies that are going to cross the Euphrates when we get to the sixth bowl judgment. Right now, we're at the sixth trumpet judgment. And what we have to wrestle with is who are, in fact, this big army. We're going to look at the four angels and how they release a 200 million unit army fulfilling God's plan. Revelation 9, 15 through 16, it says, And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and a month and year were released. Now here's the purpose. So that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, notice here you have four angels who had been prepared. And notice what's in red. It says the hour and the day and month and year. In the Greek, there's one definite article for all of that. So the definite article governs the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Does everyone see that? So the focus here is not on the duration, but the focus here is on the exact moment. And what this is saying then is that God has such control sovereignly over his creation that he has ordained and predestined the very moment for these judgments. Does everyone see that? So God is in control, isn't it? He even uses the angels for his purposes, even the wicked angels. And again, I think the angels here that are bound are probably wicked ones. Now, this brings up a doctrine that we often talk about called compatibilism. Anyone ever heard of that? Compatibilism. Now, I'm not saying that it applies necessarily to the angels here. But what's interesting is when we look at how human beings relate to God, God is completely sovereign and he has ordained and predestined all things. But yet he also uses human beings' free will actions to bring about his purposes. And I want you to see that one good example of this is found in Acts chapter 3. Turn your Bibles real quick to Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. This is a passage that you may want to keep in your back pocket if you ever get into a discussion with somebody that says, well, if you believe in predestination, you deny free will. And I always say, well, no, I don't deny free will, but free will is limited. Think about it. If I say, you know what, tomorrow I've had enough. I'm destroying the whole world. That's it. I've had enough. You think God's going to allow that? If there's a sailor on the USS Nimitz who says, that's it. I've I've had enough. I'm turning the whole ship around. I'm going back to San Diego. No, he has some free will. He can, on his time off, lay in his bunk and read or go work out or get a movie on ship or what have you. But his free will is limited, isn't it? In the same way, God limits our free will. We have a limited free will, but he does use our free will in order to bring about his purposes. And they're not mutually exclusive. Yes, God is sovereign. He predestines. And yes, people do have a free will. A free will left in and of itself in sin, a depraved free will that will never turn to God on his terms. Okay, so free will is a will, of course, that is going to be tainted with sin and cannot do that which is pleasing to God unless it's regenerated. So I'm just talking about actions versus God's sovereignty here. So again, Acts 3, 19 through 21, listen to the command that Peter gives. He preaches Christ, the resurrection, the gospel. What's his conclusion? He says, therefore, repent 
and return. And we'll talk about repentance later, what that is. Repent and return. Here's the purpose. So that your sins may be wiped out in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And, notice verse 20, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Notice verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So does everyone see the relationship between repenting so that God will send Jesus Christ who's been appointed for you? So there's this appointed time Christ is coming, and yet these people are commanded to repent. And the idea is, think about you have a bucket that's going to be filled with the repentance of the saints. And at some point, the last saint repents, comes to faith in Christ, and at that moment, Christ is sent back to the earth to set up his glorious kingdom to raise us, etc. Okay? Now, my point being there is obviously those aren't mutually exclusive. God knows when the last person will repent. He knows when the last deed of evil will be tolerated. And so we can't say, well, God's sovereignty is, not, uh, is exclusive somehow to human beings' free will in that way. That's called compatibilism. Okay. Now, one other thing I want to put up is, again, the purpose statement for these angels releasing the 200 million, man, or 200 million unit army is so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now, again, has that ever happened in human history? No. World War II, the greatest estimates for casualties, whether they be civilian or military, if you all put them, put them all together, perhaps up to 8% of the population died. Okay, or some think it's less than that. Some think it's around three, but three to eight would be the largest amount. So here you're losing a third of the world's population, and you add to that the quarter of the Earth's population that you lost already back at that uh, fifth seal or fourth seal. Well, now you're over half of the Earth's population that has perished. Okay, that's a lot of people. Okay, now I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but one question we have to wrestle with. Is, is the number symbolic or literal? Notice it says 200 million. Literally, it's 20,000 and 10,000 in the Greek. So there's two figures that are put up next to each other. And when you multiply them, it's 200 million. So that's what our English version is doing. It's simply multiplying the numbers. But the question, is this literal or is it symbolic? If it's symbolic, it would mean an innumerable number. Well, here's the problem that I have with it being symbolic. It seems to me that all the numbers in the book of Revelation are literal. Okay? We would have to have, I think, some indication that this is to be taken symbolic. And John had other choices. If he wanted to say, look, there were just many of them, he could have used terms like paulus, which in Greek means many. Now, why doesn't he just say, well, there were many, there were innumerable. I couldn't count them all. Okay, well, he doesn't say that. He says 200 million, and then he makes sure that we know how he knows this number. He says, I heard the number. So he wasn't sitting there counting them all. He heard the number revealed. This is revealed to him by God. And so I think we do take the number very literally. All right, now, the other thing we have to wrestle with here is, is this army human or is it demonic? Now, here's one where I wouldn't divide over. I know there's some very good scholars that would say this is a human army of 200 million that are going to come across the Euphrates. Um, good scholars, like everyone, anyone ever heard of John Wolverd? He taught for many years. I know Bob has um, at Dallas Theological Seminary. He would contend that these are human beings. But let me give you three reasons why I think these are demonic beings. Okay, I'll give you three. Number one, 
the focus on this army, the 200 million, is on the horses, not the riders. You would think that if it was a 200 million man army, the reverse would be true. The focus would be on the riders and not what they're riding, that is the horses. Okay? Second, the description is a supernatural one rather than natural. When you see the description of these horses, especially, or even the rider, it's very hard to understand how that could be anything that we've ever seen in the natural realm. They must be, therefore, supernatural. And I'll give you the description here in just a moment. Logistically, it's impossible for a human army this size to move into the Middle East. Now, some people scoff at that, but it's a real, it's a real problem. Here's why. In World War II, all of the armies, if you took the Axis and the Allies and you put them all together, they had 70 million men in arms. Okay, now, right now I know since 1968 or whatever, China can field a 200 million man army. They, they've got the people to do it. The problem is logistically moving them to the area of the Euphrates. It would be very formidable. Do you guys remember during the first Gulf War, the American military, we had about 500,000 troops in theater. Remember how many months that took us? I mean, we were airlifting in ships, and it just took forever. That's half a million, okay? And it took us a long time. And we were a massive military at the time. We had just come out of the Cold War buildup. Under Reagan, we had a 594-ship Navy. Now we're under 278 ships. So it's very hard to conceive of any way that another nation or group of nations could put and field 200 million people logistically in one area. Okay, so for those reasons, I think it's probably better to understand this as a demonic army rather than real. Let's look at the description. John says, Revelation 9, 17 through 19, he says, And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceed out of their mouths. So stop right there for just a moment. Notice the focus is on what the horses do. Does everyone see that? They're the ones who are doing the damage, not the rider. It says in verse 19, For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. So first of all, notice the depiction of the riders. They have breastplates that look like fire and brimstone, red, but also hyacinth, which is a blue flower. I'm not much of a flower guy, so maybe um, I don't have a green thumb at all. But hyacinth, the point is this isn't normal camouflage, okay? This is not the camouflage of the world military. Um, the only thought I had again was of the blue end, uh, of the UN. They have the blue helmets, does everyone know what the blue helmet means for the UN? It means shoot me in every language. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that in there. <laughs> the UN Army is not exactly known as a potent uh, war-fighting force. So. But uh, anyway, so obviously I don't think this is a, this is a supernatural description, even of the, the rider. But notice the horses. They have heads of lions. From their mouth proceeds fire, smoke, and brimstone. And people might say, well, boy, that kind of sounds like a tank. Well, but look at They have a tail like serpents that have heads, and with them they do harm. Well, what tank do you know of that has a tail that has heads on it, like a serpent? It's, just, it's a supernatural description. Okay, so we've never seen what this is. This is a demonic army, 200 million strong, that's going to kill a third of the Earth's population. Now, what's very interesting to note as well is 
the way in which these demonic beings kill is primarily through brimstone? What should that remind of us? What exemplary judgment happened in history? Sodom and Gomorrah. Exactly. Do you remember, Bob, um, it was probably a year ago, you gave a Sunday school, and we were in the other room, and you talked about exemplary judgments. And these exemplary judgments, Bob's point is, because God doesn't pour this kind of wrath out now, many times people think, well, God must not be that angry. The reason why God used Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, as Mike mentioned earlier, these are exemplary judgments. You see them in Second Peter chapter 3. You see them in Jude 7. In fact, we'll turn to Jude 7 here in just a moment. But what they show us is that God, the supernatural God, does intervene in natural history, and he does judge sin. So just because during, we're living during this time of grace during the church age, where God has refrained from pouring his wrath out like this, doesn't mean it's not a Bruin. Remember in Romans chapter 2, verse, was it 4 and 5, that they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. That, that doesn't mean they're incurring the wrath now. It means they're storing it up for the day of the Lord, which is the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? So, in fact, let's turn our Bibles just real quick to remind ourselves of Jude 7. Jude 7 just brings up the Sodom and Gomorrah connection. By the way, as you're turning to Jude 7, remember we had the first trumpet was hail and fire, a judgment of hail and fire. Well, that reminds us of Exodus 9, where God did that back during the Exodus. We had at the second trumpet, the sea became like blood. Well, that was like God's judgment in Exodus chapter 7 also upon Egypt. So these exemplary judgments that happened in the past where God intervened supernaturally seem to play out again in the last seven years in the 70th week of Daniel. Here, Jude 7, it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example there. They're an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So again, these judgments in the past are an example of what's going to happen again in the future. Does everyone see that? Okay, now let's keep moving for the sake of time here. Again, I want to just talk about interpretation. A third of humanity dying to a 200 million demonic being army is a problem for preterists who think that everything was fulfilled back in 70 AD. It's a problem for historists who think that everything's fulfilled during the church age. And it's a problem for idealists who just try to spiritualize it. Let me give you a couple of examples. This comes from a scholar named James Moffat. Some of you have probably heard of him. I know Bob has probably seen many of his comments that are in commentaries. James Moffat died, I think, in 1944, but he wrote a 17-volume set on the Bible that he had interpreted. He had his own translation. He was a very good scholar in a lot of ways, but when it came to eschatology, he was a preterist. Listen to what he says about this passage. He says, up to the end of chapter 9, the apocalypse, he's talking about the book of Revelation, is fairly regular and intelligible. Thereafter, Criticism enters upon an intricate country of which hardly any survey has yet succeeded in rendering a satisfactory account, unquote. Now, why does he say that? Because if you're a preterist and you believe that everything is fulfilled in 70 AD, you can't make heads or tails of what we just read about. When did a third of humanity die in 70 AD? Now, I know it was traumatic to those in Jerusalem and in Judea, that's for sure. 
but certainly it wasn't a third of the planet. And so he's just caught, just realize what he's saying. He's just saying, I have no idea how you can reconcile this with my viewpoint. We, just, we don't have any data that would see this happening in 70 AD. Now, we have an idealist. I'll give you an example. This is a commentary. The Baker, um, Bob, you've had this commentary series. I do too. It's uh, put out by, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Anderson, thank you. Anybody ever have the Baker House, uh, Baker, it's not an encyclopedia. It's a commentary series. Well, here, here's one of them. And it comes from a guy named Kistmaker. Now, he's an idealist. What's an idealist? An idealist is someone who says the book of Revelation shouldn't be seen as being fulfilled in the past, in the present, or in the future, but it just represents the struggle between good and evil. Okay? Now listen to what he says. He says, quote, this is Kistemaker. He says, last, my objective is to explain the content of this chapter, not literally, but symbolically. I am not looking for a specific time in history or the future in which the fifth and sixth plagues have been or will be fulfilled. Rather, we need to see spiritual forces at work in the world of the unregenerated wicked men, forces which are symbolized by these monsters of the infernal realm. Now, notice what's in red. I would certainly concur that we need to see spiritual forces at work in the world on the unregenerate. There's no question there. But let's ask ourselves the question. If this is just idealized and it's about the battle between good and evil... Why do these spiritual forces only kill a third of mankind? I thought Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed once for a man to die, and after that comes judgment. Doesn't every single person end up dying? So what's the whole point then to show that a 200-unit demonic army wipes out a third of mankind? That doesn't have, there's no point to it. See, if it's symbolic, one day every single person is going to die. So why a third? Well, you end up just having to say, well, none of these details matter. John was just writing. and So you just symbolize it and say, ah, it just spiritually means there's a battle between good and evil. Well, it doesn't seem to be representing John's viewpoint, does it? So what I want you to see then is when you go to a Bible study, and if they say, you know what, we're at this Bible study, and we know there's futurists, there's preterists, there's idealists, and there's historists, we don't want to take a stand. Who can know? What I want you to do is have in the back of your mind to say, well, no, we can know. We don't want to be postmodern at this point. We can know what the end says. Yeah, Eric. Just a question re- relating to that, and I think yeah. it reinforces what you're saying. Uh, this uh, Kistemacher, yeah. he says uh, up here, um, I think it's a second sentence, I am not looking for a specific time in history. Exactly. Well, neither are we. Right. Not specifically, see? That's exactly In other words, that's kind of a straw man argument. He's... he's, uh, uh, he's I'm imagining that he's uh, hinting that those of us who believe what we believe are saying, yeah, we can predict when this is going to come, and no biblical Christian would try to do that. Well said, Eric. Yeah, I think he's taking a whack probably at the historist at that point, but you're right. He also says, or the future. And to us, what we're simply saying is, look, um, we're going to take these as John wrote them. It seems to be he's trying to say something intelligible to us, and obviously this has never occurred. It must be occurring in the future. And we know from Scripture, look, the, Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, that if those days had not been cut short, no flesh would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Well, certainly that has never occurred in human history. And so, again, Jesus' words corroborate that this is yet future. 
And uh, well said. I think he's, it's, it's a cop-out is what it is. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, Peter. Just a quick note uh, to cue uh, off of Eric's, too. You know, he says not literally, but symbolically. Yeah. Why couldn't you say that about the entire gospel? Well said. Why you know, draw the line there? Exactly. And one of the problems with that is for a lo- many years, the book of Revelation, the, think about two different genres, apocalyptic and prophecy. Now, apocalyptic, most scholars for many years put Revelation purely in the apocalyptic realm. And apocalyptic literature has to be read with just mere symbology. It's always symbols represent something. What's interesting is, remember in the very beginning, John says this is a prophecy. So he tells you what genre this is in. Now, does he use symbols? He does, but we showed in our interpretation course that we did on this that he defines what the symbols are. Okay, so if John is going to use a symbol, he'll tell you what the symbol is, and we've given many examples of that. So um, just to let you know, that's one of the reasons as many scholars like Moffat and this Kistemacher and so many others would put Revelation and relegate it purely in the apocalyptic genre rather than seeing what John said. It's a prophecy, and therefore he's saying real things about um, about future events. It's a foretelling. Remember prophecy? We, I always think of prophecy in two parts. Forthtelling, telling the people of God what's required. Repent. Come to God in His terms. Seek and serve only Him. Then there's foretelling, which is talking about future events so that we may know that the God of heaven is the God who reveals secrets to His apostles and prophets. You know, So foretelling and foretelling. And I think certainly there's both in this book. So, yeah, I think that that's one of the reasons is because it should have been lumped within prophecy rather than apocalyptic literature exclusively. So I hope that helps. All right, now I'll keep working here. The unregenerate still don't repent, and that's what Bob was pointing out a few weeks ago. Isn't that shocking? Revelation 9, 20 through 21, it says, The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold, and of silver, and of brass, and of stone, and of wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Now, notice here what's in red. They wouldn't repent of the work of their hands. You have to realize that the work of the hands is always an idolatrous work in the Bible. In fact, turn your Bibles to Leviticus 26.1. I'll be reading to you, uh, it sounds like the King James Version, but I'll be reading to you from the Septuagint. And they actually have the term in Leviticus 26.1, made with hands. Okay? I'll show you another reference that Bob talked about when he was teaching through Colossians. I'll bring that up too. So we want to see this phrase, work of the hands, is something that's typically a sinful act. Yeah, there you go, exactly. Leviticus 26.1. It says, I am the Lord thy God. Ye shall not make to yourselves gods made with hands. Does everyone see the term or phrase there, made with hands? It may in your version, if I'm reading from the Septuagint, it might just say um, make graven images or make false gods or something like that. But it's made with hands, literally in the Septuagint, the same phrase that's used here. He says, neither shall you rear up a pillar for yourselves, neither shall you set up a stone or an object in your land to worship it, I am the Lord your God. So the work of the hands is always synonymous with idolatry in the Bible. In fact, let me put up another example, Isaiah 2.8. It says their land, this is about the people of God, by the way, that they'd gone into apostasy. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. 
Does everyone see that? All right. Well, I probably didn't have to give you time to turn to it, but yeah, Bob. It's also in Acts 741. Yes, Acts 741. We just saw it, didn't we? The works of their hands, right? Yep, and that's the big debate. Where are you going to worship? Are you going to worship in a temple made with hands? Or are you going to worship God in spirit and truth? Now, the temple isn't, the temple is really seen as something that's uh, neutral, as it were. In other words, the temple or any other building can be used for God's purposes. But there's a time now in the new covenant where people are going to worship God in spirit and truth. Now, one other reference I want you to see, turn your Bibles to Colossians 2.11. I want you to see a contrast between the work of the hands, circumcision made with hands, and the circumcision that God affects. I just want you to put these connections together in your Bible so you see it more and more. These phrases will come up to you. You'll see the work of their hands. And you say, oh, idolatry. And I, I know that that's the opposite of what God does. Colossians 2.11. Paul says, And in him, that's in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So notice the circumcision made without hands would be a circumcision that comes from God. Something that's of the hands is something that's deficient. It uh, obviously was commanded by God, but it was commanded to be relegated when the, uh, the Messiah came. Okay, does everyone see that? Circumcision made without hands is a circumcision that God gives. And so what mankind can do, God by the power of his spirit is going to do. He's the one who has to turn people to repent, turn from idolatry and from their wicked sinfulness. Now, the other thing I want you to see here in this text is that they did not repent. First of all, they don't repent of the work of their hands, their idolatry, from their false religion. Notice, they still worship demons, idols, gold, silver, brass, and stone. So they won't repent of their false religion, their false beliefs, but they also don't repent of their wicked deeds. So it always starts by what you believe, then how you act. They won't repent of what they believe. They won't repent of how they act. They won't repent from their murders or their sorceries. Now, repentance is very important. I'm going to talk more about that at the end here. We're going to define what repentance is and show you how it's turning from idolatry and turning to God in his terms. So these people are engaged in idolatry where they're really becoming gods themselves. And that's really depicted very well by this term sorceries. What's very interesting is the term sorcery really has to do with people who want to become like God. And they're going to manipulate the supernatural realm so that instead of worshiping and serving the true God, they're going to become like God and buy into the lie. Remember the lie in Genesis? You'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. So what I want to do now is I want to talk about sorceries. Again, sorcery is trying to become God rather than repenting and turning to God, the true God that exists. Okay, what is sorcery? Well, here's the definition that I came up with. I've studied this term for many years. I was in Micah 5 once, and I started studying this in relationship to the sin list in Galatians 5.20, where sorcery is one of the sins of the flesh. And so here's the definition that I've come up with. Pharmacan, that's where we get our term pharmacy. Now, don't feel bad if you go to the pharmacy to get drugs. You're not... Uh, you're not engaged in this type of thing, but um, that's where it comes from, the term uh, pharmacy, pharmacan. Now, here in the, the ancient world, the pharmacan had to do with the use of drugs 
or other means to empty the mind in order to contact spiritual beings, demons, in order to cast spells, to manipulate the supernatural realm, or to receive forbidden information. It almost uh, starts to become a synonym for divination at that point. But here's the key terms. Notice, it's the emptying of the mind. Does everyone see that in italics? Now, that may be because of drugs, but it may not. Yoga, contemplative prayer. Bob talked about a gal that came into the seminary. I had to uh, sit under her in one of her classes. Her name was Carla Dahl at Bethel Seminary, and she would have you focus on a mantra, and she would use the Bible, just keep saying the phrase over and over in this biblical passage. Well, what she's trying to do is to have you silence your mind. Well, the ultimate purpose for that is to contact the supernatural realm. That's the, the point of it all. Okay, so now aren't we engaged in pharmacan? So it doesn't have to be drug-related. It can be using other means to silence the mind. Uh, contemplative prayer would be one, meditation, those types of things. Okay? Now, what I want you to see here is turn your Bibles real quick to Galatians five nineteen through 20. I just want you to see how this is a, a wicked deed of the flesh. And I want you to see, we're going to talk about why it is. Again, if you're trying to notice in red as you're turning to Galatians 5, 19 through 20, if you're trying to manipulate the supernatural realm, you're really trying to be God, aren't you? You're saying, you know, if, if the true God is here, I'm going to be him, and I'll manipulate the supernatural realm for my purposes. Well, that's exactly what the people are doing in the 70th week of Daniel. Now, Galatians 5, 19 through 20, it says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. So that's the opposite then of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? And notice one of the terms that's listed there is sorcery. That comes from pharmakeia, the same term. Trying to manipulate the supernatural realm to be God and to usurp God's authority. Now, what's very interesting is in history we see the enemies of God doing this. They will try to usurp his authority. For example, turn your Bibles back to Exodus 7. You see God does a uh, work of uh, power against the Egyptians by turning their uh, Nile into blood. Well, then who tries to copy that? The magicians of Pharaoh. So the magicians of Pharaoh are using sorcery. The same term is used. And so they're trying to be like God. Now, uh, do you remember the example when Moses has Aaron throw down the staff and it becomes a snake? Well, then the Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. They can make snakes, right, supernaturally. But then what happens? God's staff eats theirs, right? (laughs) So it always ends up for the the worse for those who are engaged in sorcery. In other words, you lose. You can't out-God the true God, right? Well, notice here in Exodus 7, 20 through 22, it says, So Moses and Aaron did even as Yahweh had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. And the blood was through the land of Egypt. Now, by the way, again, we saw that at the second trumpet. So that same thing happens worldwide. So, again, that was an exemplary judgment. It happened in the past. It's going to happen in the 70th week of Daniel. But notice what happens 
it says, but the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. That's pharmacan. That's the term in the Septuagint. They're trying to manipulate the supernatural realm that God only has the right to do. All right? And so it says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not listen to Yahweh. All right? Now, what's interesting is when we get down into Revelation 18.23, we're going to see the same thing. Babylon is a world system that is dedicated to trying to manipulate the supernatural realm apart from God's authority. And so that's why it's going to be thrown down. It's going to be crushed. Revelation 18.23, it says, listen to the judgment. It says, the light of the lamp will not shine in you any longer, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer, for your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Their pharmacan, they were manipulating the supernatural realm. Dear brothers and sisters, the emerging church, all of the new age spirituality, all of that is lining up with Babylon. These people are trying to manipulate the supernatural realm apart from God's authority. They won't turn and repent, which means to turn from that and come to the true God in his terms. They want to manipulate it for themselves. That's what's happening in spades in our day and age. Now, one connection I want you to make, read this before you you go to bed tonight. I won't have time to read it now because I want to get into repentance. But jot down Isaiah 47, 8 through 9. Isaiah 47, 8 through 9 is a lament over Babylon. And what's very interesting is the very lament over Babylon because of their sorcery. Listen to this. In one section it says, those of Babylon said, I am, and there is no one besides me. What's their boast? That they're God. They're boasting that they're God. And you know what Isaiah promised? He promises that there's a judgment that's going to happen that looks exactly like this. So the lament that Isaiah had over Babylon and its destruction in the near day in Isaiah's day, is going to ultimately be fulfilled in the far day, the day of the Lord. Okay, so you'll see that connection. Just jot down Isaiah 47, verses 8 through 9. There's also another passage you can jot down, Micah 5, 10 through 15. You'll see the same thing, Micah 5, 10 through 15. That's related, however, to God judging Israel for their sorceries. Okay, now, I'm sorry, Micah 5, and uh, it's, uh, let me just point down here, it's 10 through 15, I believe, yeah. Micah 5, 10 through 15, that's where God would judge Israel's idolatry, their sorcery as well. But I want to move on to repentance. What is repentance? Um, There's been a huge debate about repentance in theological circles. In fact, you'll have church splits because some people say, well, you're saved by faith or you're saved by repentance. And what I want you to see is what repentance is, is it's turning from idolatry, things like sorcery, but anything other than faith alone in Christ alone, it's turning to God on his terms. And the way I liken repentance and faith is that there are two sides of the same coin. So notice I have a quarter on the screen before you. Think of repentance. Well, first of all, let me give you the definition. Repent, meta, neo. Everyone see the meta? That's a preposition, after. Noeo is the mind. It's an aftermind or an afterthought. It's a change of the mind. So fundamentally what repentance is, is it's a change of mind to say, I was thinking opposite of God, but now I'm turning to think like he wants me to think. That's why, remember in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. We're to think differently, not like the world that's engaged in sorcery, if pharma can, but we're to think like God. To say, no, he's the one who has the right over the supernatural realm. 
He's the one who has ordered all things. He is the one who sent his son. So that's what repentance is. It's a turning of a changing of mind, a change of direction. But I like to liken it again to a quarter. Think of repentance is tails on your quarter. But if you repent, you're turning to faith in Christ. You're turning to God in his terms. Well, what's God's terms? Faith alone, Christ alone, by his grace alone. Okay, so if you've had faith, well, it's because you've repented. So if you repent, you're repenting to faith in Jesus Christ. They go hand in hand, and I'm going to show you examples of this. Here's Mark 1.15. This is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. John has just been arrested, and he says the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There you see Jesus has both repenting, turning to faith in the Lord. The gospel is about the person and work of Christ. So if you believe the gospel, you're believing in what God has done through his person, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, yeah, Brian. In the church, though, it depends upon what your faith is in. I mean, you could be, you, you could have faith in something false. Right, so I'm, I'm assuming that when we look at faith, we're, we're, it's the correct object of faith, which is always the person and work of Christ. Right, exactly. So true repentance is turning to God on his terms. His terms are not trusting in anything other than the true Jesus, right? But when you said that there was church splits, yeah. that, that, uh, that, that would be a reason because they weren't, they, they weren't looking at what we're looking at. They weren't looking at the truth. Yeah, exactly. What I'm specifically referring to, I guess, is, and you see this with like Les Feldick, You'll have people that will argue that, well, this is a gospel of repentance versus a gospel of faith. We have a gospel of faith. You people who are repent, you want to teach repentance, you're teaching works. Really? Well, that's new to the New Testament data. That's what I'm showing you, is that um, I remember whole uh, churches would split over, well, we believe in repentance. They don't. Well, they, have, they don't understand the relationship between faith and repentance, and that's what I want you to see here. So, yeah. Yeah, um, I had taken some classes from a guy who's a, a biblical Hebrew scholar yeah. and had studied actually with a fairly famous rabbi. Yeah. And so I'm just going on what this gentleman told me, and I've never tried to cross-reference and verify. Yeah. But my understanding is this, is that in Hebrew thought, okay, there, we really need to understand Hebrew thought as opposed to our Greco-Roman way of thinking. Hebrew thought is focused on God and faith as opposed to man and reason. And in Hebrew thought, the concept that you might think something and not act on it and not do it, that's very foreign to Hebrew thought, yeah. as I understand it. Now, I, might, yeah. I might have this wrong, but uh, so this whole debate, you know, about works and repentance and faith, it's just kind of nonsense if you, if you look at it from a Hebraic perspective. Yeah, well said. Um, let me address that real quick. Um, you're exactly right. Let me just point out, though, there's a misconception that can arise from that to say, well, the Hebrews were almost as if they were irrational and we've become rationalists yeah. with the Greco-Roman languages, yeah. um, the, the, with Greek. You know, Hebrew was irrational, now we're rational. It's not that. Mm-hmm. It's that rationally the Hebrews understood that if you really had faith, you acted on it. Abraham believes God, it's credited him as righteousness, Genesis fifteen six. He's willing to act on that, Genesis 22, sacrifice the son. Why? Because he believes. Yeah. God is going to bring the Messiah through him, the seed promise, right? So, yes, if you don't act on what you believe, you don't really believe. And that's James' whole point. Exactly. So you're exactly right. Yeah. But I just want to 
qualified to say, sometimes you'll have people say, well, the Hebrews think um, almost without the law of non-contradiction. I've heard a professor at, Beth, or at uh, Northwestern say this. I said, no, they believe in contradiction. And they, exactly. They so, yeah, so they're not irrational. Yeah. Hebrews were very rational. See, but that, that disclaimer is necessary because mankind has this tendency to take something and then bring it to some extreme, ridiculous yeah. level. Yeah, <laughs> so that's it's, right. it's a well good said. point. Yep, yeah. thank you. Very well said. Well, let me show you some more biblical data here. Again, repentance is turning from idolatry to God in his terms, which is faith in Christ. Here you see an example in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, where Paul is talking about those at Thessalonica. He heard the report of their faith. He says, For they themselves report about us, about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So notice what repentance is. Epistrapho there is a turning. It's turning to, if idols are over here, pharmakeia, God is over here, you're turning from that, turning to God in his terms, which is what? It's faith in Christ. So if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you're living in idolatry. You're not pleasing to God. You don't have atonement. You don't have righteousness. You're under his wrath. You're seen as an idolater. Okay? Let me give you another example of this. Acts 11.21 It says, and at the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So those who believed, they had faith, are seen as those who are epistrepho, they're turning from idolatry, turning to God in his terms. Does everyone see that? Mm -hmm. So notice now we don't have to have a rabid divide between, well, or saved by faith or repentance. It's both. And in fact, what's very interesting is either repentance or belief can be preached. Here's a great example. Here's the sermon that Peter gives. And notice his command by, you know, he preaches the resurrection. He preaches who Messiah is. And he comes to his conclusion here in Acts 2.38. He says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what's the command? It's to repent. And the idea would be you're turning from idolatry, turning to God in his terms, which is faith in Christ. Now, I'm going to show you a synonymous idea. Remember the the eunuch from Ethiopia, he wants to be baptized, Acts 8, 36 through 37. It says, as they went, he's with Philip, they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So notice here, Peter up above is preaching, repent and be baptized. Philip the apostle is preaching what? He's preaching, if you believe, you can be baptized. There's no contradiction. If you have repented, you're on the tails of the corridor. You're turning from idolatry, turning to God on his terms. Yeah, Nancy. In one week, on one hand, two women in a Bible study I attended who practice yoga and who were given the opportunity to look at um, alternatives, rejected it. And on the other hand, the place where my mom lives in um, a Presbyterian homes facility where they just introduced three days of yoga a week for all the people there, the activities director, I gave her the um, yoga uncoiled. Yes, very good. Do you know what? They pulled it. She immediately said, this is wrong. And that's exactly what you're talking about. She turned. The other people in the Bible study didn't. But she saw it was wrong. Well said. So, well said. Thank you. That's a great example. 
So those who are in yoga are dedicated to pharmacan. It's a form of sorcery. We'll manipulate the supernatural realm. We'll become like God, right? What's the answer? To repent, to turn from that whole system and to turn to God in his terms. If you turn to God in his terms, you have faith in Christ. If you have faith in Christ, now you're bound by his commands. Where do we find that? From his writings in the new covenant. Now we have the commands of Christ. The early church devoted themselves not to yoga, but to the means of grace. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Those are the things, not to yoga. So well said. So yoga, if it's in the churches, is just a sign that the world is given over to pharmacan. They won't repent and come to faith in Christ. But again, dear ones, here my grand point that I want you to see is that repentance and faith aren't something that are opposed to one another. They're synonymous. If you repent, you're repenting to faith in Jesus Christ. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, it's because you've repented. That's the, the unity that we should see in faith and repentance. Okay? So with that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've called us out of this domain of darkness that was dedicated to pharmacan, that was dedicated to sorcery and idolatry and sins of the flesh. We thank you that by your, the power of your spirit, you enabled us to repent and to turn from that to faith in your son and that we could flee the coming judgments that we're reading about here that are so traumatic. I pray if anyone's listening that they would if they don't know you, Lord, that they would repent as well and turn to you on your terms, faith alone in Christ alone. But for my dear brothers and sisters here, I just, uh, Lord, remind them every day of what they have in you, that their sins are forgiven, that they've been transferred from one domain, the domain of darkness, to the kingdom of your beloved Son, that they're forever secure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.